Good morning. Welcome. So I wanted to start uh, today's uh, sermon with a story. And it's a common story that's often told in the East, as in the Far East. And it's a story about the blind men and the elephant. And the story goes something like this. So there were a number of blind men, and they all lived in a village. And one day they heard that there was going to be an elephant in the village. And they didn't know what an elephant was, and so they wanted to investigate for themselves, what is an elephant? So they all go, and they examine the elephant, and they all come back, and they're sitting around, and they're sharing their accounts of what the elephant was. And one of the blind men said, Ah, I love the elephant. It was big and strong like a tree, like the trunk of a tree. Another blind man said, no, no, it, it wasn't like that at all. It was more like a, a, a cord, like a rope. They're like, what? No, it wasn't like that at all. The elephant, it was, it was like a big wall. And still another one said, no, that's not right. It's, it, was, it was hard and, 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 and sharp, like the shaft of a spear. And still another said, no, it wasn't like that. It was like a snake. And another one said, no, you are all wrong. It was like a big fan. And they all started quarreling and quabbling about who was right to the point where there were some serious arguments breaking out. And then a man happened to be walking by and he heard the blind men arguing and he walked up to them and said, excuse me, but why are you all arguing? And they all told them about how nobody understood the reality of the elephant and that their perspective was correct and uh, the man laughed he's like ah you guys are silly here's the here's the reason why you guys are not understanding one another so they see you, you all were touching part of the elephant you know this gentleman he was he grabbed the leg of the elephant and and this one the tail and this one felt the broad side of the elephant that one this tusk, and that one the trunk, and that one the ear. Had you all vision, you would be able to realize that you were all right. Now I start with that story because it brings into question the idea of unity. The idea of us all being on the same page about any given topic. And sometimes this story is used to demonstrate how when we approach any topic, it might be a good idea to take a pause and to think, well, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe, Maybe there's some other perspectives out there that might help flesh out my understanding of whatever it is that I'm engaged with. But then sometimes other people use the story to talk about how all the religions of the world are similar in this respect, that they are all touching one aspect of what is really there, what the real is, and that all roads really lead to God. So I start there because 
We're jumping back into this sermon series that Jim started at the beginning of this year called The House That God Built. And so far we've been talking about how the house that God builds is one of thanksgiving. It's a house of the living. It's a house of reconciliation. A house of wisdom. A house of glory. And today we're talking about how it is a house of unity. And when I was uh, thinking about this topic, I'm like, man, unity, what a cool word it is. The idea, mm, I love it. And yet, it takes about half a second to look around and recognize how little unity is present in our world. With a, a quick Google search, um, revealed that there are some 45,000 different denominations of the Christian church on the planet. It's like, hmm, 45,000. Here in Dillon Community Church, we've had our issues with unity. We see problems with unity between people of other faiths. We see nation fighting against nation people group against people group, race against race. We see friends divided. We see families torn asunder. We see marriages fall apart. And even in myself, I feel a sense of disunity. Like oftentimes, I don't even agree with myself. It's really irritating. And I'm like, God, Lord, unity. It's something that we all can almost taste, almost feel. And yet it's ever elusive, ever evading our grasps. I love this line from a Paul Simon tune where he says, the thought that life could get better is woven indelibly into our hearts and our brains. But what is it? What is unity? For what do we yearn? That's kind of the question that I want to try to wrestle with. And, you know, a simple starting point, it seems, would be that unity, if we arrive at it, is a good thing. Ha, we're all unified. This is great. But maybe that's a mistake. And I just thought of some quick examples of instances from scripture where people seemed to be unified and yet it was not a good thing. Take, for example, Noah. In the days of Noah, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe them from the face of the earth, the human race I have created. So we have an example of people being unified in wickedness. And the Lord saying, "Mm, can't do that. Can't let this go on. 
Or we go to, how about the Tower of Babel? Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Excellent. We're unified in language. As people moved eastward, they found the plain, uh, a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar from water. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. So we have this idea of, ha, we're all unified. We're building a city together. That seems like a good thing. Industry and the brickmakers were happy. But for whatever reason, the Lord said, "Mm mm-mm, no. Or how about Sodom and Gomorrah? The angels of the Lord go into the city to pull Lot and his family out. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, son-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else in the city who belong to you? Get them out here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. An entire city, unified, debauched, Broken, depraved. And the Lord says, Mm-mm, not right. Can't let that go. So when we're talking about unity, it seems that unity in and of itself is a bad end. And that we need to understand it as a means to some end. If we're aligned with some political party and we're unified, what is the end? What are we aiming at? Or maybe we're belonging to, you know, we're engaged with some environmentalism or some sort of social justice. Maybe we're part of a religious group and we're out crusading. And we're unified in our crusade. But what is the end? What is it that we're aiming for? And it is this end of utility, or end of unity rather, that I want to try to wrestle with. And it brings us to our passage that we are in, out of Ephesians. So let me read this, and you guys join with me as we read the Lord's word. So this is out of Ephesians chapter 4. This is Paul speaking. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort 
to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So this idea of unity being captured in this idea of the fullness of Christ. What a mystery. And it's that I want to try to maybe just catch a glimpse of. And so there were some passages that came to my mind as I was thinking about this idea of fullness of Christ. It's a mystery for sure. But with that in mind, let me read This is out of John. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there And heard it, said it had thundered. Others said, an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. 
Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. I like that picture of the Lord drawing all people to himself. And it gives me this idea of drawing. I grew up in a household where guilt was often used as a motivator. And so whenever I encounter it, my little red flag goes up. I don't like guilt. I don't like to be coerced. And for me, in my walk with the Lord, it's always been something that's been very gentle. Like the Lord saying, follow me. There's no knife in my back. There's no twisting of arms or thumb screws or anything like that. Which brings the question, can you bring about unity through coercion? Is that how we arrive at unity? Have any of you experienced unity that is brought about by guilt tripping? This second passage is out of Colossians. I love this passage. It's one of my favorites. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The idea of reconciliation. I love that. The idea of being reconciled to friends and family members. The idea of being reconciled inside myself. I love that idea. God reconciling people that are divided. Reconciling broken, fractured relationships. This next picture is out of Ephesians. Earlier in the book. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose 
was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So the fullness of Christ, this idea of fullness of Christ, in these passages that I've read, we capture perhaps just a glimmer a glimmer that's characterized by God drawing all people to himself, choosing one nation to reach the other nations. We see a picture of him reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to himself. We see a picture of him reconciling the differences between peoples Now, if that is the end, if that is the function of unity, is to point to that end, then I'm in. I think that's a great vision. That's one that I'm going to buy into and I'm going to pull in whatever direction I'm asked to pull. And fortunately, we don't have to guess too hard because we are given some instructions on the way to that end. And so I want to just jump into those. Jesus gives us the example when he was talking with his disciples. He said, well, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then Jesus, of course, continued with his example by walking the way of the cross, by laying down his life and giving his life up so that he might ransom many. It's an example. And he bids us to follow him. And Paul, walking in Christ's footsteps, had these things to say. In the passage that we just read that we're uh, in today out of Ephesians 4, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. 
Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Which raises the question, in whatever unity you find yourself in, political, social, environmental, religious, do you find yourself being humble, gentle, loving, and patient? Or do you find yourself to be causing anxiety, hatred, anger, fear? Are you fractious? If that's the case, then maybe the unity to which you've aligned yourself is not headed in the right direction. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when you're seeking unity, are you at the center of your vision? Is your cause at the center of your vision? Or are you like Paul, crucified? with Christ and you no longer live but Christ lives in you. In his letter to the Philippians he says it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Are you in such a unity that when your name is besmirched, dragged through the mud that you're okay with that as long as Christ is elevated in his letter to the Corinthians Paul said for God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. 
So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Does our cause call us to lay down our lives so that his life may be celebrated, his life might be revealed, his light shining through our vessels of clay? So I started this, uh, this sermon with the story of the blind men and the elephant. And I talked about how the person from the outside came to the blind men who were arguing, and he had this perspective saying, ah, oh, you guys are silly. You guys don't understand that you're all talking about the same thing. And it's funny because, as I said, if this is applied to some form of terrestrial subject, politics or, you know, environmentalism or social justice or something like that, it's a good thing to think, you know what, I ought to be humble. I ought to listen to other perspectives because I am absolutely 100% certain that I do not know it all. So let's listen. But when it comes to the questions of all the faiths on the planet are equal. They all hold the same truth value potion. There's a problem with the story. Because the man who comes into the story who can see the elephant is someone who does not exist. It's a trick in the story. And yet people use it all the time to illustrate this particular point. You see, the man who comes in from the outside, he's saying he has a perspective that the blind men don't. But who is this person who has the ability to see the elephant for what it is? This is where I would argue that the Christian story is the only story where the man who comes in from the outside and has that perspective is the one who died, was buried, and was resurrected. Because he traveled to the other side and he came back. And because of that, because history records that, it gives Jesus the authority to say things to any of the doubting Thomases of the world I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So rather than all religions being equal, Jesus says, no, they're not all equal. They may capture elements of truth because we were built by the Lord, every single one of us, all over the planet. Every single one of us bears his thumbprint. And we all seek his truth. But there is only one gatekeeper. There's only one person who can have the authority to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So this last week we celebrated Easter, and I had the opportunity to read the Passion story. And I got to read the 
the passage about Peter and his denial of Christ, how he denied him three times. And at the the last denial, the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered what the Lord had said. And it says he went out and wept bitterly. But there's a great story on the other side of that. Peter, still not knowing that the Lord had risen, suddenly is encountered by the risen Christ. He's like, I'm going fishing. And he and his disciples, they all jump into a boat and they're fishing all night. They don't catch anything. They bump into someone on the shore. Lower your nets on the other side of the boat. And of course, as the story goes, they lower their nets and they catch 153 fish. And then they eat and they realize it's the Lord. And they eat with the Lord. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Follow me. In the passage out of Ephesians that we read, talked about us being built up for works of service so that we might reveal the glory of the Lord. (laughs) And it was interesting because I read that the account of the denial of Peter on Good Friday and then on Easter Sunday I told the story of how the old rugged cross came to be so um, close to me. And I was in a bar in Ireland and I was playing music and a drunkard, a lady, came up to me and said, can you play the old rugged cross? And I was like, "Uh, it's not really the right place for a hymn. 20 minutes later, she came up again. Can you play the old rugged cross? Uh, Let me think about that. 20 minutes later. Can you play the old rugged cross? She's in front of me, stinking, slurring, stumbling over herself. Can you play the old rugged cross? And I realized, you know, those 
the, the, the picture of both of those, you know, I have Peter on the one hand denying Christ three times, and here I am in this bar confronted with someone who I wouldn't give a second glance. Some wasted life crawling about on the streets. And then from that person I hear, can you play the old rugged cross? Wow. How small is my vision? The Lord can reach so far to reclaim anything and everything. And I get the opportunity to participate in that. We all get the opportunity to be part of that story of sharing the good news that the Lord is alive and that he's loving and good. Can you play the old rugged cross? So I thought with one final thing, I thought, you know, if anything else, maybe I can give you guys a picture to help you cement this idea into your head. So I asked Errol if he could help me, and he came up with this. The idea of unity. The I is always subject to the cross. If our unity is not focused on the end of revealing the glory of the Lord, we might want to reconsider the direction our unity is headed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. May we understand your love in a way that is more profound than we have ever experienced it before. And may we understand, Father, how you have equipped us to reveal your love to the people that you have in our world. Thank you so much. Amen.